0: His sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. And he sent him to his home, saying, Do not even enter the village. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others, one of the prophets. And he asked them, But who do you say that I am? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated.
1: Thanks, Emily. So if, uh, if you are new, um, we've been going through the book of Mark since we started, and uh, something I've said every week, and, and today I get to explain in depth why I've said this every week. We get to hit a really cool verse today, um, but I've said this every week. We're going through the gospel of Mark um, very intentionally from the beginning because the question we really wanted to answer was... Um, Who is Jesus? What is Jesus about? If we're going to say we're about Jesus, um, then then what is he about? When when we read uh, the gospel of Mark, what, what does it say he is about? And so... Um, The Gospel of Mark is is really good, better than the other Gospels to do this. And I've said this every week because um, the Gospel of Mark is is written in a dramatic irony form. If you know anything about literature, um, it's written from a perspective where we as readers know certain things that the characters in that story don't know. And what we find as readers from the very beginning is that Jesus is about his kingdom, that Jesus is God. We see these things as the Father declares over him in his baptism, Jesus coming onto the earth and declaring his kingdom has come, that, that the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand and he's come on the scene doing these things and we can see this as readers, right? Well, as we're seeing this as readers, we're noticing that people besides the demons, no one in the story, people specific, they don't know who he is. And so we get to kind of un- unpack what, what, what the story telling us. Now, uh, today we're going to, um, if you, you imagine we've been kind of climbing this mountain in the gospel of Mark, we're going to hit the peak and start the descent, Okay, the, the uh, most scholars, 95% of scholars would say the book of Mark is written kind of into two sections, and we're going to finish the first section and start the second section uh, today. And the reason we're going to do that, you, you'll find out. But before we do, um, I, I had a quote that I want to read to you that does, has nothing to do about the text specifically, but about what we're doing. Um, I, I definitely see, as, as I'm only, I've only been doing this every week now for about four months preaching, that I can tend to read um, the Bible— like, it's a science experiment. So so I'm kind of, I won't pick up the Gospel of Mark, you know, and I have to watch my heart from this because I'll pick up the Gospel of Mark and I, and I won't, like, let it just like, just hurt me, right? Like, I won't let it, let it come at me and, and let it be beautiful and, and see my, my, my spirit. Like, yes, that, that's, that is awesome. But instead I can kind of like, okay, here's the Greek verbs and here's this, and I can lose sight of that. And, I, and maybe you're not going as, as deep in these texts as, as I am, but every week we're coming here, and even as I make the statements, we as readers know what's going on, but there's the characters, you're going, yeah, 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 we've heard that, right? Um, I, I want to read a, a quote from Packer, J.R. Packer, who who I, I, I think um, has a, a perfect quote just on that notion before we go into Mark that I think will help us get our, our hearts back aligned to what we're really doing here. The last thing, if, if you know me, the last thing I'm trying to do is just do church. I think it's a silly, foolish Loserish game to do. I really do. I, I think if you're just playing the game at church coming here, it's just, it's fool's gold, man. You're, you're kidding no one. And you're going to stand before Jesus and he's not going to know who you are and it's going to be a terrible day for you and that's not what I want to do. I want to be moved by the text so it affects my life. And this is what Jr. Packer says um, specifically about that. For this very reason, we need, talking about what what I was just talking about, that we can get moved and pulled away from that. Uh, We need, before we start, to ascend our mountain, to to stop and ask ourselves a very fundamental question. A question, indeed, that we always ought to put to ourselves whenever we embark on any line of the study in God's holy book. The question concerns our motives and intentions as students. We need to ask ourselves... What is my ultimate aim and object in occupying my mind with these things? What do I tend to do with my knowledge about God once I have it? For the fact that we have to face um, is this. If we pursue theological knowledge for its own sake, it is bound to go bad on us. It will make us proud and conceited. The very greatness of the subject matter will intoxicate us, and we shall come to think of ourselves as a cut above other Christians because of our interest in it and grasp Of it, and we shall look down on those whose theological ideas seem to us crude and inadequate and dismiss them as a very poor specimen. So the, 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 point what Packer's trying to get at is this idea that, man, we come together and I'm excited. Listen, I believe that when you teach the Bible, you should go verse by verse by verse. And, and, and you've seen like when I get excited, how beautiful it is. But, but if we do that every week and we, 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 we exegete and we break it down and we see the beauty of God's word, but it doesn't change who we are. What's the point? Like we can walk out of here and go, man, that was crazy. Sean, like I didn't even think about that before what's the point? Like if if we're not going to look at our community, if we're not going to look at our neighbors, if we're not going to change the way we live, then why even do it? Like like to continue to accrue knowledge, for what end? But it should cause us to fall deeply in love with Jesus and that deep gospel-centered love should drive us to be outward focused. So with that said, Mark chapter 8 verse 22. We just came from Jesus, uh, dealing with the Pharisees, uh, and, and, uh, the Herodians. And we talked about how leaven can seep in. And there's this sin idea, whether legalism or licentiousness that can seep deep within our souls. And Jesus tells us to beware of that. And then he looks at his disciples. If you recall last week, and he looks at his disciples and his disciples are talking about bread. And he's like, why are you talking about bread? Right? Like I own the bread company. Why are you worried about this? And, and his disciples are not getting it. And he goes, do you not hear? Like, you can hear what I'm saying, but you, you're, you can hear me, but you ain't listening, right? White man can't jump. You you, you, can, you can hear what I'm saying, but you're missing it. You, you, you can see what I'm doing, but you're not really seeing it. And so he's, he's getting frustrated with what's going on. And so um, uh, he explains that, that whole deal. And then he goes on, and they, that is the they, him and his disciples, come to Bethsaida, and some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. Let's stop. So the way this is going to work is we're going to read a verse. I'm going to explain a little bit, read, explain if this is your first time, now you know. So here's what we have. He just left, and uh, Jesus and his disciples, and they encounter this blind man. And I'm going to tell you the story about this blind man, but before I do, um, I want to kind of lay, lay some foundation so you understand. This story is is really bizarre as to where it is. It is on the eve before we hit the last passage before we descend back down. And uh, Jesus has healed a lot of people people already but there's some bizarre things that happen in this story um, that truth be told I don't fully know and, and we can only uh guess at what exactly is going on but there's something more um and I don't want to over spiritualize the text but there is something more that is going on here that we really can get at so let, let me read it for you and then um I'll do my best to explain he meets this this blind man who uh, begged him to touch him do not enter the village. Do not even enter the village. So let's just go face value what happens. Jesus encounters this blind man. Um, he sees this blind man, a beautiful picture. I, I just, a side note, crazy beautiful picture. He takes this blind man, they're in this village, outside of the village. So if you can just picture Jesus holding his hand saying, okay, watch out, on your right there's this, and he's leading him, just really, I mean, hang, how hands-on our Savior is, right? So he's leading this blind man outside of the village, and then as nice as he was, he takes him and he just spits on his face, um, I have no idea why, okay? Um, he spits on him. You know, we could joke about Holy Spirit or whatever it is. I have no idea what's going on. Um, he spits on his face. Hey, do you see anything? The, the man in that moment goes, well, well I kind of see things. I see things that I haven't seen before. I see kind of looks like men. They look like trees walking around. I don't know what's going on. Jesus then touches his eyes, and he sees clearly. Now, this is bizarre, okay? I mean, let's be straight. I have no idea, one, why he spit on his face. Two, I don't know why he wasn't healed the first time. I don't think Jesus like lost his power. Like, I don't think he was like, okay, I'm ready to do it again. I, I, I think there's this, he, he healed him and I, and, and I don't know like physically what happened. And, and most people, we can only speculate as to what happened. So if you're looking for an answer there, I don't know what to tell you. So he, he spits on him. He eventually heals him. The man sees clearly and he tells him, so He gives them some, some marching orders from there. Now, um, this story, as crazy as it is, and I don't want to speculate as to what's physically going on, I think does have some symbolism as where we're going to go and where we've come from, right? Because um, here is Jesus, and he's been dealing with the people, and what do we talk about? Who don't really know who he is. Like, even his disciples. Like, he said, you see, but you don't really see. Like, you hear, but you don't really hear. You're watching what's going on, but you're you're missing this whole thing. And then enter this blind man. Like, Mark intentionally, by the power of the Holy Spirit, is putting this story where it is, from where we just came from to where we're going to go, which I think is is really awesome, that there has been this kind of slowly but surely unveiling of who Jesus is. It's been this progressive-type visual sight that we see in this blind man. Now, I want to take that story, and I want to shelf it for a second, and we're going to reference back to it, but I need you to keep that in your mind, because that's going to really push us in the direction of where we want to have our focus, because I think that's a hinge section of verses, okay? So, with that being said, Jesus um, heals this blind man in this partial type healing as he leads him outside of the village and we get to verse 27 After he sees clearly um, And he sends him home and jesus went on with his disciples to the village of caesarea philippi and on the way He asked his disciples Who do people say that I am and they told him john the baptist others say elijah and others say the prophets so now, they, they just went to Bethsaida. They go to Bethsaida for this one healing, which is bizarre. Then they leave and go to Caesarea Philippi. And as they leave, Jesus on the way is talking with his disciples. And here is our verse. This is our section of verses. So this, this is what we've been waiting for, right? Listen, dramatic irony. We're the readers. We're reading this book. And we're seeing, hey, we know what's going on, but no one else. So Jesus finally wants to alleviate the tension. We're living in this tension. For the love of God, somebody get this right. And Jesus finally asked some people, all right, So who do people say that I am? I mean, beautiful, right in the middle of Mark, right? Who do people say that I am? And his disciples are walking with him and, and, and they go, well, some people say that you're John the Baptist. Some people say that you're Elijah. Some would say that you're one of the prophets and you, as the reader. You're going, no, like we, we. I've seen from the beginning, what do you mean? How are these people thinking this? We've been wondering, what are they really thinking? And they don't think he's the son of God because they're missing it here and there and there, the, the Pharisees, and finally the question's asked, and you're going, Dah! like how, how could you think Elijah, John the Baptist, the prophets? Now, now, um, before we get to this next question, I think um, we as readers get to see this, this story unfolding. We get to kind of get out what's going on in the hearts of people with these answers, though. I mean, so, so, so check it out. Um, we, we remember John the Baptist, right? Like everyone in this story knows about John the Baptist. He was just beheaded. Remember that? Like John the Baptist was beheaded because some teenage girl did a dance. And we know for sure Elijah's dead. We know the prophets are dead. So these, these are Old Testament figures. And yet the people think, this is if, if the, the disciples are right, the people think that Jesus is one of those guys. Which leads us to believe that they believe that Jesus, one way or another, has been resurrected. So, so this guy, Jesus, here they are. Yeah, yeah, we, we believe that he's John the Baptist. So then you think he, he came back from the dead. I, I guess I do. So a so lot he, he came back from the dead. Yeah, yeah I, I guess he's one of the prophets. And you trust the prophets. You believe in the prophets. Yeah, yeah, I, I guess, I guess that, that I do. And, and what's crazy, before we get to the ultimate question here that Peter has to answer... It's this um, bizarre irony that we see in our culture like I, I love that that we see this disconnect between um, everyone thinking who Jesus is intellectually, but not wanting to embrace that and wrestle with that truth. So here's what I mean. I hear a lot, and I don't want to just build strawmen, but the truth of the, the, the matter is, maybe you or your friends or your family would say, "Yeah, Jesus is a good dude. Like he, he's a, he's a good moral teacher." Um, maybe some of you would even say he he's God, but you know it's kind of this whatever. We all kind of have our own way or whatever. And the reality is, if if Jesus is a good moral teacher, that then and then I would have to ask the question, then why not follow his teachings? Like if he's a good moral teacher then, or, or he's a good dude, then why not at least read his story? See, what we see with the people is the same thing that's going on within our culture and maybe within some of us, that we see a truth about Jesus, or at least what we believe is a truth about Jesus, and it's, it's nice from a distance. Yeah, yeah, he could be John the Baptist, but we don't have to wrestle with the fact that if I believe he's John the Baptist, then I believe he's rose from the, that, he, that he rose from the dead. That, that's, that means he's got power. Or, or if I believe he's a, he's a good person, or if I believe he's a good moral teacher, then I really got to go, man, I, I got to wrestle with this. Because if he's a good moral teacher, um, he's probably not going to lie. And he's just going to tell us here in a moment, and, and we get to see in his life story that he said he rose from the dead. So he's either a liar, like he's lying about this, or if he's a good moral teacher, then he's telling the truth about this. And if he's telling the truth about this, then you've got to wrestle with it. But but just like the people then, we do the same. We like the idea of intellectually embracing these concepts, but we don't want them to go out our life. He's a good Facebook friend. I'll, I'll tell him on his birthday how much I love him, and 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 we like that distance. But the, but the reality is, like, and it, it's going to come to head eventually. We have to, like these people, have to wrestle with who Jesus is saying he is. He the most polarizing figure in all of history. You have to begin to ask yourself. Who is this guy? Because if I say he's this, then I got to wrestle with those implications. And this seems to be the disconnect. I, I, the greatest, I think, example is this. is One, one of my buddies is an um, atheist, and he holds the Darwinian evolution. And I don't, obviously don't want to get in this conversation right now. But, but whenever I talk with him about it, and he's like, yeah, man, it was survival of the fittest. And, I, oh, and, he, and he, he likes to do, like, um, serving projects. And I'm always asking him. I won't say his name, but I'm like, dude, like, why are you doing serving projects? If it's survival of the fittest and you believe that's true, then why do you care about anyone? Like, why do moralistic, um, sell, like helping people, what, if, it's survive, if you really believe that it's always been survival of the fittest, then you need to get yours. But the reality is, like, right, Like, right? There, there's a disconnect but between what we know and, and what we really, really, really believe. And in this moment, he, he's someone, he's John the Baptist, he, he's Elijah, he's one of the prophets. But if I say he's God, Then I got a whole nother matter to deal with. And so from a distance, there's this declaration. Now what's crazy is um, we also, here's, here's the dissent. We also have to wrestle with this. Like I can build up a straw man and say, yeah, some guy out there likes to call him a good moral teacher. Um, But the truth is uh, what you would say is what Peter's about to say. And, and and that if you're a Christian um, and that, that, creates even more problems, because us as Christians have to do the same thing that the non-Christian has to do, but just in a a different way. Here's what I mean. Um, Jesus, after asking um, who other people say, uh, says he is, um, in verse 29, he turns and he asks them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. So here's the question. Who do people say that I am, Peter? Uh, this, 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 this. Okay, well, well, who do you say that I am? And now Peter, in that moment, has to answer this question. Hear me, hear me. Like, not fire and brimstone in you, but listen to me. You will have to answer that question. You are forced to answer that question. In this life or the next, you are forced to answer that question. Who do you say that Jesus is? Now, Peter, in this moment, answers it beautifully. Matter of fact, um, when Peter says, you're the Christ, um, we see in the parallel passage with uh, Matthew and Mark, in in Matthew, this is actually what Jesus responds in in, uh, Matthew 16, verses 13, um, uh, chapter 16, 13 through 17. He says this um, with with the the same story. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked the disciples, who do people say that I am? The Son of Man is. And they said, some say John the Baptist, others Elijah's, and others Jeremiah uh, or one of the prophets. So he's getting at this, this same concept. And he said to them, who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him. Hear this. This is what Jesus responds with to Peter's answer. Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. So, so, ding, 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 Peter gets it right. Finally, the descent of our mountain. You guys, please get it. Somebody figure it out. Somebody. Thank you, Peter. We hit, we hit it. Somebody's finally got the answer right. And, and he gets it right kind of in two reasons because, check it out, um, people have been saying that, that yes, you, maybe, maybe you're like one of the prophets, Jeremiah in this moment, Elijah, John the Baptist, and we as people believe not just that they're good people, but we would say guys like that and David, um, Moses, those are anointed dudes. Those are anointed guys that God used for a purpose, but that's not what Peter says. There's two very specific things that he does. He says that you are the Christ Christ, this, this is Christos, you are the Messiah, this anointed one, but you're not just anointed like these other guys. You are, look, look at the definite article, you are the Christ. You're not just some anointed guy, you are the anointed guy. We've had people who've helped us along and, and, and have served God in certain ways, but then there's this man, Jesus, who is the Christ. So, so hear me, you're going to have to answer that question, and I've given you the right answer. For the love of God, take it. Okay? So here's the right answer. Blessed are you, by John. Bar- you've gotten the answer right. Now stay with me because this is going to get real important. That's our peak. So I want you to imagine Katniss Everdeen looking at the, the screen, end of the, end of the, the second, that second movie, and you're like, are you serious? Now I've got to watch the third one. And then they break it up into two sections, and now you've got to watch both of them. So the, 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 the descent now begins. There is... Um, by all rights and purposes, almost every scholar would say that is the last passage in the first part of Mark. So if you can imagine the movie ending and we finally got it, somebody's got it right. Jesus is the Christ. He's the Messiah. He's the son of God. He, he's here in the flesh. The one that we read about in Genesis. The one we've read through about the prophets. People have prophesied about this guy. Here he is. We finally got it. We as readers have this huge alleviation. And then, and, and, and then it turns to this in verse 31 as he strictly charges, charges them to, to tell no one, which is always a, a conundrum we have to wrestle with. And, and he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and, uh, and be killed and after three days raise again. And he said this plainly. Okay, okay here we go. Here, here's, here's why, why this, this blind man in the beginning was very important to us, because we finally get who Jesus is. We finally, as readers, get to see Peter as who Jesus is. They've gotten it right. But now Jesus says, yes, this is me. That's who I am. But now let me explain what's supposed to happen to me. Because the Messiah, in their mind, is a guy who's going to come conquer Rome, who's going to set them free. And now Jesus just declared that he's going to die. How crazy for us, as we continue to wrestle with who Jesus is, that Jesus is not doing what we want Jesus to do. And he speaks plainly about it. Listen, here's the deal. I'm going to suffer. Total prophecies. I'm going to suffer under these guys, and then I'm going to raise three days later. So not only am I going to suffer, not only am I a suffering servant, but I'm in control with what's about to go on. I am in control with everything that's going to happen. I am doing this intentionally. Now, now, now this is the first time where we as readers of the, the Gospel of Mark go, Jesus is crazy. We, we finally go... What do you, Jesus, what do you, now you have to, listen, if you were raised in church, you don't need to be raised in church. You know how the story ends, okay? But you got to understand, like, imagine people that, let me, let me just set you up with the context here. There's people in this story who right now are being killed by Nero. They're reading this letter and Nero, this, this leader at the time is just murking people out. If you're called a Christian, he's killing you. He's killing you. He's killing you. He's just killing anyone and everyone who declares himself a Christian. And they're reading this story about Jesus and they're going, yes, he was the Messiah. He he is going to save the day wait, 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 what, 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 he, he's going to die? Like, so this is the first time you've heard the story of Jesus in this context, and you're going, wait, wait a minute, he's the Messiah. I thought the Messiah was supposed to, to to come and save the day. And Jesus says, no, I'm here, and I'm going to die. Now, we, we, as readers, especially if we're in that first century, would wrestle with this, but Peter outright opens his mouth and, and says it. And this is what he says, And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. (laughs) Peter's great. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Take that. And said, get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on things of God, but on things of man. So we have our descent down, we find out that this Messiah who we thought was, was supposed to be it, is not what he's going. He's not doing what we thought he was supposed to do. And here we stand as readers going, what? And Peter says what we're thinking. Jesus, and he's, he pulls him aside and he begins to rebuke him very strongly. What are you talking about? If you're the Messiah, then you're, you're gonna, we're going to march into Rome or Jerusalem and we're going to take this beast over. Wait, what you, You're not going to die. Jesus sees that he's being like put on blast in front of all his disciples and says... Let me tell you something, okay? And, and he goes at Peter. Now, when he goes at him, he says, listen, you're setting your mind on things that are of the earth. But you don't understand what I'm doing. You think that the Messiah is supposed to live in luxury? You think that the Messiah is supposed to be this, this great worldly ruler? But I'm telling you, you're missing it. Now, now this is, this is um, crazy because he, he calls him Satan. <laughs> peter at the end of our last movie we just saw peter got it right blessed are you peter and you're satan okay so so we just see in peter this perfect scope of what we saw in the blind man the fact that we can see like peter we can get that he is the savior but we struggle with him being lord like we see that, that, that yes, he, he is who he is, but the fact that he has rule and does what he wants, we begin to, to wrestle with because we're setting our mind on things of the earth. We're, we're, we're not understanding what Jesus is doing. And like the blind man, we're, we're, we're there, but, but it's slowly but surely in this moment we, we've gotten it right, but yet we still have these satanic set, uh, tendencies. This is a, a, a perfect parallel. Now, now here's, here's where I want to switch, and then we'll go to our last uh, section of verses, and then I will be done. Um, but here's what I want to say as we, take, we go down this descent. Um, if that is you, if you are like Peter— and you are a Christian, and you would say, yes, I, I believe that Jesus is Lord, and I've, I've seen that, now I look at the sentence, and I go, okay, I get hindsight though, and I can wrestle with the fact that Jesus is supposed to die, and I, I can see that. Um, I think the question um, that the, the, the person who doesn't know Jesus and is still wrestling with who Jesus is, you have to ask your, yourself that. If, if he is uh, your Savior and he is Lord, there are implications for you as well. If you are going to say, yes, I'm going to submit to whatever you want to do. And I see that you are a suffering servant and you are going to die for me. If that is true and you believe that's reality and you submit to who he is, then this next text is not something to punt on. This next text that we're going to read is is for us to take very, very seriously. This is what it says. So he takes him aside, rebukes him, things of God focusing on things of man. In verse 34, now, um, if it wasn't enough, he, he has the disciples, but now Jesus calls over the crowd, and calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what? Does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? There, there, there are moments in the Bible that we read that are super sobering. There are times, whether we like it or not, that fire and brimstone type preaching is forced to be there. Whether we're reading it and our second, we we kind of get a reality check to go, wow, what do I do with that? Um, if it's crazy because this specific passage, those three verses right there, um, uh, whoever buried Charlemagne, uh, when they buried him, they put him in, in his, uh, tomb and they put him on his, on a throne. And, and the, we, the people didn't know this at the time until they opened up his tomb, uh, um, some year, hundreds of years later. And when they opened up his tomb, somebody put a Bible in his lap and his, put his finger right on this section of verses. So when you were to open the tomb, you would see this man sitting on this sick throne surrounded by ridiculous amounts of riches and there's this man with a cold dead bony finger pointing at this passage like that's a reality check i mean so 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 what does this mean like if there is implications for us as christians what are those implications and I believe there's one statement in here with two questions that I think we can wrestle with. So let, let's um, go at this passage very specifically. And before we do, um, uh, actually, let's go at it, and then I'll uh, share a quote with you guys in, in a second. It's not from Spurgeon, I promise. Um, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake uh, and, and the gospel's will save it. So let's talk about this. Here's the statement. You need to, um, as sexy as this can be in the church. Oh yeah. I'm just denying myself. I'm batting my eyes. I'm not looking at this. I'm getting triple X software. It's, it's this, it's kind of this cool language that we have in the church. Unfortunately, um, denying yourself and taking up your cross is terribly painful. Like anybody who's really walking this out to know that like, man, there are things that I want to do. And, and I'm not just talking like far away things there are things that are immediate that I go I can't be lazy right now or there are things that I know I should do and it's not so cool in that moment to know know you're denying yourself it's hard it's extremely hard it's so hard that it costs your life and I really began to think about this what is your life like is there any ever moment where you can go well that doesn't include my life like no matter what you do it's your life (laughs) Okay, I know this is simple. Everything. So you're like, okay, I need a, so whether you're getting up, brushing your teeth, writing the letter T, on your way to work, um, in your marriage, everything is your life. And in this moment, Jesus says, yes, all of it. Every single thing, the way you breathe, the way you sneeze, everything you do is your life. And if you try to take that life and you go, yes, I, I want to make it. I want to have more of my story in it. Maybe subconsciously, but I want to just hold parts of it. And I'm not just talking like the platter or, or the buffet, pick this and this. I know that's the cliche. I'm talking very specifically. You have parts of your life that you go, yes, I'm, I'm living for Jesus in it. But the question has to be like, are, are you? Like, like yeah, you, you, you're, you're doing it. But like, are you denying yourself? In every single thing you do, because if he's the Savior, and he's saying he's going to the cross, you're to follow him. And that's a denial in everything. How many times have we read in the book of Mark that Jesus is unbelievably tired? In every, your life, every single piece that you do is to be submitted to him, because if you try to save this life, if you try to, to harness it, if you try to say, um, yes, I want to make the most of it. Maybe as Christians, you wouldn't outright say that, but we can see it sometimes. Um, but maybe if you're not a Christian, this is definitely your mentality. that You would say, um, yes, now I want to drink. Uh, drink. I'm going to drink. I'm going to listen to you, uh, whatever it is, and be merry because tomorrow I die. There's, drinking is not a sin, FYI. Okay? Um, my, my point is this, though. You, you would say your life is, is about you. Um, he has two questions in, in response to that. Um, For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? The second question, for what can a man give in return for his soul? Um, Has anyone ever come close to that idea? So so when I say your life, everything, um, to give up all this world, he immediately goes at this idea, what would it profit for you to gain the whole world? Like, well, there's no man ever who's ever gained the whole world. Maybe Alexander's come close in the Roman times. And when we see Hitler made a run for it, Stalin made a run for it. But no one has ever been this world power. No one can actually say, the whole world, I own it all. And in that moment, Jesus says, if you had everything, everything, it would not be worth comparing for your one small little soul. Within your body, it's not worth comparing. Matter of fact, the only guy that we have um, that would come close to this is actually in the Bible, a guy named Solomon. He's this dude. If you read uh, uh, Ecclesiastes, the most depressing book you could ever read, um, in chapter 2, this guy says, listen, I tried to figure it out. I tried to, before Jesus, tried to gain the whole world. He had more women than he knew what to do with. He had more comic relief than he knew what to do with. You plant gardens. He planted forests. He, he did anything and everything he wanted. We're actually told that he made um, silver so common it was like stones. He was so rich that people would come around from other places like, I heard about this rich dude. He has so much money that it's that's silver, real silver, not, not knockoff stuff, is on the ground. It's just like stones. It's everywhere. This is how rich this guy was. And he writes this book to go, I've got to figure out what life is about. Because, foreshadowing, this idea of, man, I've gained the whole world, but so there's still something empty. And over and over and over, what we find in his book, Vanity. It's pointless. You can try to gain this. You can walk down the road. I'm telling you, you think that that life is good. I've tried that exponentially. And I'm telling you, in the end, it's awful. It's vanity. And he gets through this whole book, this chipper little book, and at the very end of it, in chapter 11, um, the very end, the very last thing that he says is this. This is how he finishes this book of of wonder. The end of the matter, and all has been said, fear God, keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man, for God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. The end of the matter is this. Submit to God. The guy who experienced, if anyone can say, more than all of us combined, take all of us, I don't care if all of us were made $100,000 a year, all of our finances combined, it's, it's a drop in the bucket for how much he had. I, for, for No matter like you want to brag about how many women or men you've slept with, it, it would be a drop in the bucket. He has been down that road. He's tried hobbies. He's given his life to, to crazy things. And in the end, he says, I'm telling you, the only thing that matters is that you would submit to God. This is it. This is the only thing that matters. And, and what we find perfectly, and here's, here's how we finish, um, is, a, is a great quote by, by Tim Keller. Um, actually, it's not how we finish because I have another quote after this. It's, liar. Um, this is what he says, the disciples finally begin to see the true identity of the one who has been following. Now, G, who have they been following? Now, Jesus says two things. I am a king, but a king going to a cross. And if you want to follow me, you've got to come to the cross too. So this is how we're going to revert back. And I said, we shelf that blind man idea for a second. And, and this is um, how we'll finish it. The last verse says this before uh, we do that. "Forever is ashamed of me and my words, and this adulterous and sinful generation of him will the son of man be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his father with his holy angels. This is um, probably the most sobering statement of all, and this is why we get to revert back to the blind man, because the reality is um, you can try to save parts of your life, but, but again, the question you have to answer is, who is Jesus? And if you are ashamed of who Jesus is on that day, believe me, it's going to be bad for you. You have to understand you need to give everything to Jesus, everything to Jesus, that you would deny yourself in all matters of life. But here's the beauty of this passage. He starts with this blind guy. And this blind man cannot see. Like, he, he, that's what being blind is, right? He, he can't see. He, 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 and maybe he, he has routes that he can take. But our passage reads perfectly like this journey, doesn't it? Because um, Jesus in no way says, hey, um, you're blind and I want you to see, so I need you to go ahead of me. And, and he doesn't look at us and say, hey, listen, um, there's a life of denial and suffering that you need to embrace, so go suffer. That's not how the passage reads. What, what Jesus tells us in this moment is, I'm going to suffer. So, so, so if you can imagine Jesus, like you, grabs your hand and he leads you out of this village. And as a Christian, when your eyes are open, suddenly you recognize that you're at the base of a mountain. And he slowly takes you up the base of this mountain. And he goes, Jesus, where, where are we going, man? I'm, going, I'm taking you up the mountain that I went up. I I recognize that this is the same mountain you went up, but I understand you went to the cross. Yes, I'm telling you to follow me is to go up this same mountain. I'm telling you, if you want to follow me, then you need to deny yourself. The difference is I went up this mountain with the sin of all past and present things that you have done on my back. But I'm telling you to follow me and, and, and submit to me and give your life to me because that's true. So, so now suddenly we recognize I don't have to submit, begrudging, white knuckle my way through. I have to give everything or God's not going to love me. No, no, no. Jesus very gently grabs your hand and he leads you out the village. And he says there's moments where you're going to get it and there's moments where you're not. Watch out, son. There, there, there's things that you're going to see and there's, hold, hold on, this way. And he's guiding you slowly but surely to the cross. And in that moment you go, wait a minute, Jesus. Ah, wait, wait a minute. Uh, that's not what this is supposed to look like. And Jesus goes like, you're setting your mind on things of the earth. Submit, trust me, this is what it's supposed to look like. The beauty in all of this is, you think your joy is found opposite of the cross. You think if you go back into the town, that's where you're going to find all the pleasure. And Jesus in this moment is saying, no, no, you want your joy to be full. I'm telling you, trust me. Um, Dietrich Bonhoeffer this is where I'll finish, was a pastor during World War II. Um, I'm going through his his biography right now, and I'm always amazed um, when I go through it how much this guy um, really takes the scripture, living it out. And he has a question that he has to ask. And I I read the quote I'm going to read the third weekend, and it's perfect for us to read as we make this descent down, because um, the question of us denying ourselves comes up as to what is grace and what are we supposed to do with it. And he wrestles with a question that goes, if I'm a Christian and I see Hitler doing what he's doing, do I have an obligation to fight for justice? Like, he has to wrestle so much with the text to go that God has come for the poor and weak, that if I see the poor and weak suffering, do I need to stop the one who's making them suffer? And so he's actually a part of an assassination attempt on Hitler's life. That's how much he has to wrestle with this. And he, and he steps back and he looks at the mass Christianity in America as he comes here to visit. Ironically enough, he only finds the best churches in the black churches. He loved the black church. And he was like, white churches are terrible, but he loved the black churches. It's hilarious. Okay. Um, and so, so what, what's, what's crazy in his whole story is he wrestles with this idea, how could grace that God has given you not affect who you are? How could you continue to live a life the way you want to live it? And this is what he says. He calls it cheap grace um, and costly grace. And this is how he, he defends it. And then, I'll, and then I'll pray for us. Cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance. Baptism without church discipline. Communion without confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship. Grace without the cross. Grace without Jesus Christ living and incarnate. Costly grace is the treasure hidden in the field for the sake of of it a man will gladly go and sell all that he has it is the pearl of great price to buy which the merchant will sell all his goods it is the kingly rule of Christ for those for uh, for whose sake a man will pluck out the eye in which causes him to stumble it is the call of Jesus Christ at which uh, the disciples leave their nets and follow him costly grace is the gospel which must be sought again and again and again the gift which must be asked for the door at which must be knocked Uh, Such grace is costly because it calls us to follow. uh, Sorry, I lost my place. It calls us to follow and it is grace because it calls us to follow Jesus Christ. It is costly because it costs a man his life and it is grace because it gives a man the only true life. It is costly because it condemns sin and it is grace because it justifies the sinner. Above all, it is costly because it costs God the life of his son. You were bought at a price and what, what has cost God much cannot be cheap for us. This is the reality we have to wrestle with. If you believe Jesus, if I believe Jesus is who he says he is, if he is the Messiah, if he is Lord over everything, over everything, visible, invisible, thrones, dominions, rulers, or powers, if he is the head of the church, if in him we look, we live, we move, we find our very being, if all these true things are absolutely true for us and the reality we live in, then it is not cheap grace we would hold to. It costs something. It costs our very, 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 life, everything we do. Hope that sobers us up. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for who you are. We recognize that um, this text is hard, it's difficult, that we get to um, read a passage that um, calls us to give our very life. But yet sandwiched on the outside of that, that truth is this idea that you went before us that you suffer, that we, we serve a God who suffered for us and, 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 and calls us to partake of that suffering not because of sin, but because of goodness, because of love, because of deep compassion, that we have been saved by you. That's the gospel truth that we get to, to live in. We pray that we would, um, we would be reminded that we were in the village and we needed to make it outside and you led us by the hand and you, you guided us out outside of that village and, and you put us in a place to where we can see clearly. And yet at the same time, though we answer the question the right way that you are the Messiah, we can still get it wrong in questioning what you're doing. Help us. We recognize that most of what we believe even right now is, is probably false and we need to be sanctified in that. And so help us. There's so many ideas floating in the air that we grab a hold. Help us, help us, help us. We need you, Jesus. We, we want to give our life. Holy Spirit, continue to haunt us to do that. We love you. We praise you. We thank you so much for your word. It's in your name we pray. Amen.